Uh, this Thursday, many people will be gathering around a table, maybe you will be, with family and friends and celebrating Thanksgiving, which can be an exciting time for some, a difficult time for others, and somewhere in the middle for many. Johnny Carson, the late comedian, said of Thanksgiving, it's that time of year where people spend lots of money to travel far distances to have a meal with people they only see once a year, only to realize once a year is far too often. <laughs> maybe that's your family, maybe it's not. But I don't know if that's true of your family, but here's what I know is true, that when we gather on this day, what most of us are hoping for is a time of peace, uh, a time of a little bit of tranquility maybe, everyone getting along. Uh, I know that's often many people's hope, but I also know it, uh, it, it's true of you and the people you'll gather with, and it's true of me and the people I gather with, that often we know the one or two things that could be said that will maybe intrude upon the peace and tranquility. And I don't know what that is for your family. I don't know what that topic is uh, for your family, but usually there's some trigger words that people know that if we get into this conversation, the meal's not gonna go as smoothly. Somewhere this week, there's a mom or a grandma praying, please don't anyone bring up the election, depending on where your family is or standing, you know, because I just want this meal to go nicely. Right? Somewhere, you know, uh, there's people preparing food and what they're hoping is people will just sit around the table and enjoy it. But we all have often those things that we know could intrude upon it, those topics, those things that could change that environment. Like the Thanksgiving table, the church, I think, ought to be, ideally, and in God's plan, a place of peace, a place where people get along, a place where people are in relationship, and a healthy place where we uh, share with each other, where we love each other. But then we often know those things that could be said, perhaps, that come in and intrude upon the relationship and intrude upon that peace. That sometimes, just like around the Thanksgiving table, sometimes in a church, sometimes in relationships, there are those things that can intrude upon it and break up some of that peace. This morning, as we look at Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about some of those issues. He's talking about issues that come up amongst Christians, not core issues, not the issues that are clear in black and white in scripture, but more these, what Paul calls discretionary issues, or in the ESV that Lewis just read, he opinions, or the NIV calls them disputable matters. That there's these things that come up sometimes that Paul is writing to this church in Rome, and he's saying, I know there's these things that come up, and some very particular ones that are coming up among you that are causing some division. And he says, I want to talk to you about those things. And so this morning, I want to talk about disputable issues. I want to talk about these issues that are not black and white, not those core issues that Scripture clearly teaches, but these disputable issues. I like to think of it sometimes as the difference between a creed and a conviction. In Christianity, in, in any religious system, you have certain things that are creeds. You have certain things that... All people, all Christians, all the time need to believe in order to call themselves Christians. These we would call creeds. That 
uh, we would say all Christians, no matter where you live in the world or what time of history you have lived in, that these are things that if you call yourself a Christian, you would, you would embrace them. Creed. We even have uh, formal creeds. We have the Apostles' Creed that we would say uh, is, uh, embraces much of what Christians believe. The Apostles' Creed, maybe you're familiar with it. I believe in God the Father, all, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, for there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, small c, church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, I say small c there because some people can't separate the word Catholic from the Roman Catholic Church, and there is a difference in that creed. But these are the creeds of the church, these things we believe in. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We would say all Christians all the time, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, this is what you need to embrace. But then there's this other thing called convictions. Convictions are different than creeds. Convictions are things that you may hold and you may hold them very strongly, but they're not things that all Christians all the time hold everywhere and sometimes good Christians disagree over them. And they're not things that we would say are litmus test items for if someone is a Christian or not a Christian. Convictions are a little bit more the personal way that you will live out your creed and you will live out your relationship to God. They're convictions in your life. They're not to be held lightly. They are to be held uh, seriously and taken seriously and applied to your life. And yet they are not the same as a creed. They are not the same as if I come to you and say, if you don't hold this conviction that I hold, then you're not a Christian. And it's over these convictions, over these disputable matters that Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, I need to tell you how to hold these things and how to handle these things. Disputable matters. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we must guard against the idea that every matter is an area of disputable conscience and the idea that nothing is disputable. Listen to that again. We must guard against the idea that every matter is an area of disputable conscience and the idea that nothing is disputable. So there are some that may hold and say, look, everything's just a matter of conscience. You know, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's just a matter of opinion. It's a matter of, you know, kind of how you feel and I feel and, and I believe this and you believe that and it's okay. Everything is just a matter of conscience. And others on the other side, the other pole, the other extreme may say, nothing is a matter of conscience. That nothing is disputable, that everything is a creed, everything is black and white, every Christian must hold everything the same way and, in the, and live it out in the same way if they're going to be right biblically. And as Pastor Tim Keller, I think, rightly says, I agree with him when he says, not everything is a disputable matter of conscience, but it doesn't mean that nothing is. There are certain things in your life that you're going to have to look at Scripture. You're going to have to look at what God said, and you're going to have to decide how to live it out, and someone else may look at the same Scriptures and decide differently how to live that out in their life. I'm not talking about those things that are clear and black and white in Scripture. Don't misunderstand me, but I'm talking about those things in life that the Bible doesn't speak clearly on, and you'll have to decide how to live that out. Paul calls them disputable areas. 
And so what about disputable areas? This is what he tells us. Three things in this passage. He tells us what we often do with disputable areas. He tells us what we should do in disputable areas. And then he tells us why we should do it. What we often do in disputable areas, what we should do with these disputable areas, and why we should do it. So let's talk about what we often do when it comes to these disputable areas of disagreement. Two categories of people, Paul labels them, weak and strong. Weak and strong. And in this situation, the weak, he said, are people who were observing certain days, were abstaining from certain foods and drinks in honor of God. What's likely happening is the tradition they came out of had certain days and dietary restrictions that they observed and the tradition they came out of said, this is how you worship God. You maintain these days. You maintain this dietary restriction. And so they came into the gospel. They came into following Christ and they lived out honoring God in this same way, abstaining from these foods and living out and and recognizing these days. And Paul says that's the weak Christian, he calls them. The strong Christian that Paul says is you understand that the days, uh, there's, you know, you don't have to honor one day above another and you don't have to have these dietary restrictions because you're not under the law, you're under grace and you understand that and so you live that out in your life and yet when these people come together, there's a problem and Paul is saying, I don't want you to form a vegetarian church and a carnivore church. I want you to be together as one church, and here's how you live together. He says, this is what often happens. He says, for the weak, the temptation is to judge the strong. They're the weak, the ones that come in and they have certain restrictions of this is how we honor God. The temptation is to honor God. Verse 3 says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Verse 3 says, when not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. He says, the temptation that you have as you honor God in the way that you live is to be judgmental, is to pass judgment on the one who eats. There's a temptation to look at someone who does not maintain the same restrictions and judge them to be less holy, less loving to God, less committed to God, perhaps even less of a Christian. Watch out for this, Paul's saying. Perhaps you have certain convictions in your life when you're around other people who don't live out the same convictions in the same way. Do you judge them? Do you think, well, they're just not as serious about following God? Do you secretly pat yourself on the back because you're not like them? What often happens, Paul says, is the weak will judge the strong. And he says, be careful about that. But there's also a temptation for the strong, the one who eats and the one who, uh, the one who understands that he doesn't have to maintain these dietary restrictions. He said, let not the one who abstains past judgment, um, first part of the verse, I'm sorry, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. The temptation of the strong is to despise and to hold in contempt the weak. The temptation of the strong is to look down on the weak person with disdain. The first line of the passage, verse 1 of chapter 14, talks about this mindset. Paul tells them, don't welcome the weak. Uh, He says, welcome the weak, but not to quarrel. You might put that on your Thanksgiving invitation. 
He says, welcome the weak, but not to quarrel. Think about that sentence, why he had to write that. He had to write that because obviously some of the strong would say, oh yeah, yeah, come on in, we'll welcome you. And all they want to do is quarrel and argue and tell them why they're wrong and tell them why the way that they live is wrong and they just want to argue with them. And he says, welcome the weak, but not to quarrel. So he's correcting them. See, the temptation of the strong is to just argue. Temptation of the strong is just to say, look, here, I'm right. You're, you're so wrong on this issue, and here's why, and here's chapter and verse, and, here's, and here's, here's why you are wrong. And Paul says, don't welcome them to argue. You're tempted to disdain or hold them in contempt. We have to be careful. We have to be careful that our convictions don't become our creeds and move into judgment or disdain. Here's how it might look. I thought about this this morning. Here's how it might look in a very practical way. I had biscuits and gravy for breakfast this morning. I hear mixed reactions to biscuits and gravy. Perfect. This illustration is going to work well. Had biscuits and gravy for breakfast this morning. Wendy made it earlier this week. We had some left over. It was, so I had biscuits and gravy for breakfast this morning. Now you may be sitting here and you're thinking, I don't like biscuits and gravy. How can you even eat that? And that's fine. No problem if it stops there. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, you really, you, you really shouldn't be eating. You know, you and my doctor are saying, you know what? You really shouldn't be eating biscuits and gravy. And that's fine. No problem if it stops there. Or maybe you have even stronger convictions and you're sitting here going, you know, I believe that the body is the temple of God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within you. You need to treat your body like a temple and you need to make it last and be healthy and you should not be putting biscuits and gravy in your body because you're not treating it like a temple because I wouldn't do that and, and I, you know, I wouldn't do that and that's my conviction and that's fine if it stops there. But then, if it goes to the point where I would say, listen, where someone might say, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I don't think I should be putting biscuits and gravy in my body, and you shouldn't be putting biscuits and gravy in your body, and a good Christian wouldn't treat their body that way, and if you are treating your body that way, then you may not be a good Christian. In fact, you may not even be a Christian. And so I went from enjoying my biscuits and gravy in the morning to, to, a, to a heretic, um, in the moment and how does it happen because we've moved our convictions into our creeds and so Paul is saying be careful I think biscuits and gravy falls under the disputable issues category <laughs> he says be careful when you make a disputable issue core issue when you start judging people over it or disdaining them over it because you're going to make the mistake of bringing disunity to the church. What can happen is an issue that really is not sinful one way or the other. The way we respond to it causes us to commit sin by the way we treat other people because we violate the law of love. Pastor Matt Chandler, pastors in the Dallas area, church, village church, uh, one of his sermons, he interrupted one of his sermons one day, went a little off uh, the uh, topic because he said, I, he said, I heard something said in the hallway in church last week that I need to address. 
He said, I was walking down the hallway at church and I heard someone say, we're so much better than that church down the street where they have to wear suits and ties. And Pastor Matt Chandler stood up and said, don't you realize you are doing the exact same thing? You think you're, you think you're out of the box and all this, you're just in a new box. You look at them, they look at you because you're in flip-flops and shorts and you look at them because they're in suits and ties and they judge you and you disdain them and you're both wrong. And that's what Paul's saying. Disputable issues, and it often comes with things like dress and music and media and things that the scriptures don't necessarily clearly speak to and we have to decide how we will honor God with. And we have to be careful about it. Dress is one of those disputable matters. One person says, God accepts me the way I am and I dress. The way I dress is not going to impress him or earn points with him at church. Another says, you dress up to go to the White House. Why don't you dress up to go to God's house? To which another responds, all ground is holy. Every place is God's house. One judges, one disdains. And Paul says, stop it. Here's how you should live. And so he goes to the next things. What should we do when we differ with Christians over disputable matters? Verse 13 is kind of the turning point of this passage. It says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Let us not, so two things. Don't pass judgment and don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister, someone in the body of Christ. Don't pass judgment and don't put a stumbling block in it. So for the weak, and I think for both, he's saying, look, stop your judging on these issues. It's not helpful. But then he has additional words to say to the strong. And in fact, the rest of the passage, most of the stuff he says to the strong, because the strong, I think Paul feels, has a greater responsibility in this area to care for the weak. And he says to the strong, don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then he goes on, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Let's unpack that statement for a second because here's what's interesting about that statement. Paul says, I know that nothing is unclean in itself. Here's what he's saying to the strong people. You're right. You're right. Your theology is correct in this area. Your logic is spot on. You are absolutely right. When it comes to scripture, you are free in Christ. You have freedom. You don't have to recognize a certain day. You don't have to recognize these dietary restrictions. You don't have to do that. You're right. But then he goes on to help the strong to understand, but they also have a great responsibility. He says, logically and theologically, you're right. The food in itself is not sinful. The disputable matter is not sinful. You're correct. Playing gin rummy is not going to send you to hell, contrary to what some past generations might have thought. But then he says, but it is unclean for the person who thinks it's unclean. 
He's saying in disputable matters, again, not things that God is clear on in scriptures, if she is convinced it's unpleasing to God, then for her it is unpleasing to God. If he is convinced that it's unpleasing to God, then for him it is unpleasing to God. I find that extremely interesting because a lot of times we're like, no, you've got to get right on the theology on this issue. And Paul says, in the disputable matter here, it's okay. They need to more obey what they believe is right and wrong in this and not violate their conscience than they need for you to win an argument with them about the fact that the food, that they can eat any type of food. What should you do when you differ with other Christians on disputable matters? Verse 16 says, do not let what you regard to be good to be spoken of as evil. In other words, don't let your freedom all of a sudden to be spoken of as a negative thing because of the way you're handling it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then he says, look, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, your love is more important than your logic on this matter and disputable issues. He's saying there's a way that you can win so much that you lose. There's a way that when you're so right, you're wrong. You're so strong, you become weak, that you help so much that you hurt, that your logic is trumping your love and you're injuring another brother or sister in Christ. And over a disputable matter, don't do it. Let love reign in that situation. says it's good not to eat meat or drink. Now, of course, you're free to do. We, we know Paul just said, you're right. You can eat whatever you want. But in this case, if it's going to cause your brother or your sister to stumble, just don't do it because that's more important. That's more important. I would call this the way of the strongest. Paul doesn't give it that label in this passage, but I think there's three categories in this passage. There's the weak, there's the strong, and then there's the strongest. The weak says, I can't eat for it will displease God. The strong says, all things are clean for me to eat. The strongest says, even though I know I can eat, for the sake of my love for God and my fellow Christian, I will not. And that's what Paul calls you to. Take into account the other people around you that are following Christ and on their journey and how do your actions affect them? Third point, why should you do it? Why should you do it? After all, you're right logically and theologically, so why should you not act that way all the time and take full advantage of your freedom? Because your freedom is to be tempered and governed by love. Verses 19 and 20. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So he says, for peace and for mutual upbuilding, that's why you should live this way. For the sake of, and then he also says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. How can that happen? How can it happen that my choice on handling my freedom could destroy the work of God? 
It's by working against the spiritual formation of God working in a person's life by causing them to ignore their conscience for what they believe to be right. Because the bigger threat to a person's spiritual life is not that they might have an incomplete theology on a disputable matter of Christian freedom, but that they would fail to listen and obey the voice of God and their conscience in their life. The biggest threat to someone's spiritual formation is not that they have an incomplete theology on a disputable matter, but that they would fail to obey their conscience and start living their life in opposition to that conscience that God has given them. And thereby their spiritual formation is thwarted. And so Paul says, don't, for the sake of the work of God, don't destroy the work of God in a person's life for the sake of your freedom in this area. Now again, let's keep in mind, these are disputable matters, and this is over a very specific person whose spiritual growth is going to be hindered in this. This isn't about someone saying, hey, this is, what I, this is the way I want to live, and they hijack the church to live that way. Remember, Paul is talking as a strong person to strong people. This isn't the weak person saying, you've got to live to accommodate me and holding the whole church hostage to their desires of how to live. This is Paul as a strong person talking to strong people saying, you and I need to temper our freedom if there's a place where it's going to impact someone's spiritual growth. In that case, the law of love ought to triumph over your rights in this situation. If, your logic, if by your logic you cause someone to act in a way contrary to their thinking, you may be working to destroy the work of God. It's a strong person talking to strong people. This is why you should do it, because your actions are not just your actions. Your actions affect those around you. We live in a world that says, I have my rights, and I'm going to maintain and keep and have my rights. The most magnanimous, maybe, in our world would say, I have my rights, and I want you to have your rights, too. But the Christian way takes it a step further and says, I have my rights, but I will temper them under the law of love if it involves your spiritual growth, if it involves your relationship with God. Only God can call you to do that. And that's what happens in this passage. Conclusion, let me wrap up with a couple applications of story. My grandmother um, passed away a few years ago. Never ate meat on Wednesdays or Fridays. Those of you, some of you are looking at me quizzically. Some of you are nodding your head because you know. Because you come from a background, a Catholic church background that never ate meat on Fridays perhaps. Or some Fridays. See, she grew up in the age of the Catholic Church where flesh meat was not allowed to be eaten on Fridays. I observe this because Jesus' flesh was given on a Friday for our salvation, so they would abstain from flesh meat on Fridays. That was up until Vatican II, and then some changes were made, and then they said, well, now you can eat meat on Fridays, just not on Good Friday. And then they made some other changes, and they said, well, no, no, now you can eat meat on Fridays, but not on Ash Wednesday, and not on uh, the Fridays of Lent. 
between Ash Wednesday and Easter. But my grandmother didn't pay any attention to that. She just didn't eat meat on Fridays. And she didn't eat meat on Wednesdays either. And the reason she didn't eat meat on Wednesdays was really had nothing to do with the church and its doctrines. I asked her once why she didn't eat meat on Wednesdays. And she didn't eat meat on Wednesdays because once when she was younger, uh, she had asked God for something. And I don't remember what it was, but it was a significant prayer that she had prayed and asked God for. And she said, God, if you will do this for me, I will, I will give up meat on Wednesdays as well as Fridays. And so even when I knew her when she was much older, she was keeping that commitment and covenant that she had made to God not to eat meat on Wednesdays. To be honest, I never really noticed it. I, I didn't really notice much. I mean, you're sitting down and you're eating. I don't notice she doesn't take a meatball. You know, I, I didn't notice. She didn't have any problem serving chicken parmesan to us on, on a Friday or a Wednesday, but she wouldn't eat it herself. And it's interesting. It wasn't going to damage her faith if, if someone else ate it. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was her personal conviction, not her creed. And so she held that. And it would have been wrong of me in light of this passage, to try and convince her that, look, don't you know Acts? You know, don't you know what happened with Peter and, and God made all things clean and all foods clean? Don't you know we don't have those restrictions? Don't you know Romans chapter 14 and it's not about what you eat or what you drink? Don't you know that all things are clean? I mean, what's the problem? Have a meatball. Have some veal parmesan. What is the problem? And if I had convinced her logically that it was right, and if she had eaten that meatball in front of me, she would have been going against her conscience, and I would have been working against the work of God in her life. Because I might have been right on the theology and the logic. But convincing someone to act against their conscience when they are especially doing something that they are doing it in order to please God that's what's going on in this passage. They are abstaining from food and drink in order to please God. And you convince them to go against that. Paul says, you're not helping. You're hindering their spiritual formation. Dale Carnegie, um, his famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He has a line, a chapter in that book that says, you can't win an argument. Carnegie says, nine times out of ten, an argument ends with each of the contestants more firmly convinced than ever that he is absolutely right. You can't win an argument. You can't because if you lose it, you lose it. And if you win it, you lose it. Why? Well, suppose you triumph over the other man and shoot his argument full of holes and prove that he is a non-copos mentis. I don't even know what that means. I hope I didn't just curse. If I did, forgive me. Then what? You will feel fine. But what about him? You have made him feel inferior. You have hurt his pride. He will resent your triumph. And a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So if you win, you lose. And if you lose, you lose. You can't win an argument. And the bottom line is arguing convictions is a lose-lose proposition. We can discuss convictions and we should. 
We, should have, we can absolutely have discussions about convictions. We can talk about why we hold them, and we should. But we should recognize what Paul says in the first verse of this passage, that welcome the weak, but not for the sake of quarreling. Don't enter into discussions about disputable matters just for the sake of arguing about them. Because arguing convictions, quarreling over convictions is a lose-lose proposition to his own master. He stands or falls. And if he believes it's unclean, then it's unclean for him. And you must allow him and the work of God to happen in his life. And so this happens in our lives and in our church and we need to be careful about it. Think about the places where we need to be careful about it and I think of parents with kids. And I think of many disputable matters that you will have to guide your children on. And the easy thing often to do And especially when they're younger, sometimes you can't explain it to their older, but explain it you must. Because the thing that can happen is that something that is a disputable matter or a conviction that you hold may be seen as a creed. And then suddenly, more and more gets added to what it means to actually be a Christian. And they would say, well, I can't hold maybe that exact same conviction that you hold in this disputable area, so I must not be a Christian. So maybe I'm not a Jesus follower because I don't hold this exact same conviction. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about the clear black and white teachings of Scripture. I'm talking about those disputable matters that you have chosen to live out the way you have chosen to live them out, convictions in your life and in your home. If we mistakenly align them with the creeds of the church, that if you live this way, you're a Christian. If you don't live this way, you're not a Christian. Then we have a generation trying to untangle what it is to be a Christian and not untangle convictions from creeds, and it's confusing. And so we need to be careful in this area. I remember a number of years back when the Harry Potter books came out. And you had people taking up sides on it. And if you weren't in the church then, then you don't even know what I'm talking about. You wouldn't believe it. But yes, people taking up sides on the Harry Potter books. Well, there's magic in it and there's this in it. So no Christian can possibly read that. And if you read it, you're not a Christian. And the other side says, look, my kid has never read a 500-page book in their life. And they're reading 500-page books. And it's great storytelling and great literature. And and, and I think it's great reading. And then it's a disputable matter because I don't think I found a chapter and verse on Harry Potter in my Bible. Maybe it's in the appendix somewhere somewhere near the back, but these disputable matters. And if we're not careful, we can make our matters of conviction sound like matters of creed, and it causes confusion, and then sometimes it causes people to walk away. Because if that's the creed, maybe I can't hold on to that creed. Because Jesus made it pretty simple, and when we add on to it and complicate it, When we add on to repent and believe, then it gets complicated, and we need to be careful about that. It's about music, it happens, right? I mean, I, when I, growing up in the church, it was never said, I don't think it was ever said, I don't recall it ever said, but I do feel that at times it might have been communicated, that if you were going to listen to something other than Christian music, maybe you weren't a Christian, 
And sometimes you hear, well, there's some pretty good music out there. And do I have to wait for some Christian artist to copy that so I can listen to it? I don't think, like I said, I don't think it was ever communicated that way, but sometimes it was communicated that way without the words being spoken. And then convictions and creeds get mixed up and confusion comes in. Do we need to bring guidance? Of course. Do we need to share our convictions and why we hold them? Absolutely. Do we need to at times be clear on what is the creed and what it is to follow Christ? Yes, absolutely. Happens with older and younger generations. The older, and we need to be careful about this too. The older with the younger generation. Be careful. Be careful not to impose your weak convictions about music as a matter of salvation and judge them. Because you think that certain music can't be sanctified, can't bring honor and glory to God. Be careful not to impose that or judge the younger generation who finds a way to give glory to God with electric guitars and other things. Be careful, but be careful, younger generation. Don't disdain the older generation. Don't start looking at them and disdaining them and hold them in contempt just for the sake of arguing that this is music that God can use anyway and finding your chapter and verse to argue with them. Be careful. Be careful on this matter to walk in unity, disputable matters. Of course, we would even have disputes over what is disputable. But we need to extend love and grace to each other. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the unity that I sense in this church. I'm thankful for the grace and love that gets extended. I'm thankful that this morning when I walk in, that I, one of the first people I see is Edgar Bartlett, dressed in his suit and tie because he's going to church. And he embraces me and says, good morning, pastor, even though I'm in jeans. <laughs> Doesn't say, pastor, did you forget you were going to church this morning? And we embrace each other and we worship together and we don't let disputable matters get in the way of fellowship and love for God. And so this is the vision of the church that Paul paints. It's a church that will care so much about others that will sacrifice things they are perfectly able and have the right to do. We live in a world that wants its rights and the most magnanimous among them will advocate for others' rights too, but God calls his people to sacrifice rights for the sake of the growth of others. Let us always work for peace and mutual building up and applying the law of love and err on the side of loving one another rather than on the side of rights. Our world says that the principle that governs everything is survival of the fittest. This chapter and what God says is he's concerned about survival of the weakest. That there will be those among us who are growing in their faith and those who are strong must be concerned about the spiritual growth of the weak. So maybe this is you. Some of us, maybe you grew up in a church, maybe you grew up in a situation, maybe you saw creeds and convictions mixed and you're struggling with that and maybe today you need God to help kind of straighten that out and get back to the foundations of what it means to follow Christ. Or maybe 
you've had this spirit in you that at time has been judging others and you need God to deliver you and set you free from that. Or maybe you've had a spirit that's so right and you know you're so right that you just can't wait to argue with someone about a particular point and you need God to set you free about that, to just extend grace in disputable matters. Let's pray that God would do all of that this morning. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that you and you alone have a perfect theology. The rest of us fall short. That you and you alone are the one who absolutely knows right from wrong on every single matter. But Lord, what we hear in this passage this morning is there are some matters that we're going to differ on and you're okay with it. There are some matters when it comes to serving God that good Christians are going to handle differently and you are okay with it. Lord, would you help us to also extend that grace in areas to one another. Father, would you help us to see areas in our own life where we have been judgmental? Where we have been improper in our judgment. Lord, in those disputable areas where we have brought judgment in a place where Paul would say to his own master, he stands or falls. Lord, would you open our eyes to those places in our lives where we have been maybe held contempt for our brother or our sister where we've tried to argue them into our point of view and to living their life for God the way we live our life for God. Would you show us, Lord, show us the pain that we can sometimes cause each other when we do that. And Father, I pray especially, Lord, for the person who's in here who, Lord, has seen a seen an intermixing, a tangling up, a confusion between those things that are convictions, who maybe was told something was critical and a creed in order for them to be accepted by you, who was perhaps told that if they didn't act or dress or speak this way, then they wouldn't be loved by God. Lord, I ask that this morning you would do your work to set us free in Christ. To know, God, that, Lord, when we come to you in repentance, when we come to you and believe that if we, as we read in Romans earlier, confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that we are saved. Lord, may we know that that's your criteria, faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us, Lord, to understand and to receive your grace as it is offered. I ask your forgiveness for those of us as leaders if there's times we have misled. Those of us who are parents, if there's times we have misparented and led someone to believe that they needed to act or look a certain way to be loved by God before God would love them. Lord, would you help us how would you help us to extend grace? Lord, not to ever compromise your gospel, but to never add to it either.
Father, let us be that kind of church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.